from the Stereo Sound Record Studios, your home for the best in unsigned and indie punk, rock, and metal. This is The Mosh Pit with your host, Wes Everett. Welcome to the Mosh Pit. It's your host, Wes Everett. I am here with a lot of people. Hello. AJ Green's back. I've got Billy and Savannah back again from their hunts and jewelry making and all their other fun stuff they've been doing. How you guys been? We've been good. Been good. Good. Let's get right into what we want to talk about, which is the African hunt that Mr. Billy went on. Yes. What you got? Walk us through, walk us through getting there because... Did you, were you able to take your own stuff? Yes. So um, originally how this went down was my mom met a guy who was a bow hunter and he'd been to Africa several times. So she starts talking to him and says, oh, well, my son does primitive bow hunting. And he said, really? 
has he ever been to Africa? And she says, no, he just hunts here in the States. And he had told her he really needs to go to Africa. It is a bow hunter's paradise. So it's like, okay. I'd always kind of thought about going. Uh, It seemed a bit of an unreal, unreachable goal. But um, started talking to this guy. He'd been there five times before, and he was spearheading another trip that next year. So he said, we'd love you to join us. Okay. So um, we were prepping for the trip, and then COVID hit, and everything got shut down. Uh, Trip got canceled. South Africa slammed its borders closed. Nobody was traveling anywhere. So uh, that trip was on hold. Um, And then about two years later... uh, year and a half later, sorry, um, we ended up, travel started to open up, and the guy who was spearheading the trip was having trouble because it was a group of guys going, and they couldn't get passports or something mm-hmm. from Canada. They lived in Canada. They couldn't get passports. They were having problems with um, getting vaccinations and all that. So he said, if you want to go, why don't you just go ahead on your own? I said, okay. So I'd never been before. Uh, booked the trip through um, African Aero Safaris, which is a an outfit in the Limpopo province, and they cater exclusively to bow hunters. They don't allow gun hunters out there. So um, they have setups for close-range shots. They've got the animals are not spooked because you don't have people running around blasting at them with guns. So mm. it, for somebody hunting with a primitive, essentially Stone Age bow and arrow, that's what I need. I need I need animals who are relaxed. So went over there in September of 2021 for 13 days and hunted for 13 days with a primitive bow and stone-tipped arrows and put them to the ultimate test. I wanted to see what these things could do against tough African game and how effective they would be. So and it's I don't know if anybody who's ever done that. Nobody would would go to the other side of the planet and invest that kind of money and time and effort to go hunt with a weapon that's so limited as far as range and capabilities. If you're going to go over there, people are hunting with the most expensive, high-tech compounds, powerful rifles. Mm-hmm. They want to go over there and they want to be successful. So, um, But I was on a different mission. I wanted to put these things to the test and see what they could do. That is so cool. Now, were you able to make you were you took your own bows and arrows made here yes was yes. there any like issue getting those on a plane or anything or was it just no. like no there was no issues guns can be a little bit different uh, mm-hmm. a bit of an issue you've got to declare them and and there's a lot of more hoops you got to jump through but with mm-hmm. archery gear it's not it, it's much less of a problem mm-hmm. um i took a 55 pound osage orange long bow uh that i'd made basically out of a tree um and I took arrows that were made out of river cane, which is a native bamboo, and tipped them with stone points that were actually, a lot of them that I'd made were based on copies of original Neolithic stone points that came from farther north up in sub-Saharan Africa. But I have some examples, and I've seen some originals. And so I copied even that. So I went over there with with my authentic copies of what they were using back in the Neolithic three, 5,000 years ago. Yeah. And was like, all right, let's see what these things can do. So it was not an issue. Um, shipped it all over there. And then 
the first day we got there, landed in uh, South Africa in Johannesburg, and then had a four-hour drive up to the uh, to the hunting outfit, and got there kind of late at night, and then went to bed. Woke up the next morning, practiced on the range, and then we started our first hunt that evening. What was the one animal that you saw that just like you were like, holy shit, I just saw that? Well, I'd have to say the most regal animal that I saw that just blew me away was the kudu. And it's, for those of you who don't know what a kudu is, it's about the size of an elk. And he's got, an, he's got horns, not antlers, but horns that look like a giant corkscrew. Mm-hmm. And they're about, I don't know, three and a half, four feet tall coming off of his head. So it, when that thing came in, it was just the way that thing moved, it just commanded respect. And just one of the most graceful, elegant, beautiful animals I've ever seen. And that was actually one of the animals I did want to get with my primitive bow. So um, I won't get ahead of myself right now, but that was one animal that was on my on my hit list. Now, going over there with a primitive bow, I, I didn't really have any expectations, had never been there before, didn't know what I was going to see, what what I was going to get an opportunity at. So I was I w- kind of was had an open book as far as I would just take whatever animals presented themselves and and see how these weapons do. So that's so cool. That is so cool. So um well I'll tell you um so one of the first things I did was I took my father, I also took my father's my late father's fifty five pound recurve. So he had had this bow custom made and for years he tried to get a big game kill with it. Never did. Um and sadly he died ten years before um in 2011 so on the 10-year anniversary of his death i had never even shot that bow because it was his bow Mm -hmm. and so it stayed quietly in a case and i just said one day i'm going to take that bow out and i'm gonna i'm gonna complete the goal that my dad never could and so when i went over there to africa i said i'm going to bring this bow and i'm going to bring some of his arrows and i'm going to bring so there's a st- I put stone points on, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complete what my dad never could. So that was the first thing that I ended up getting. We went out in a blind. A herd of about 18 wildebeest came in, and they were milling around, and they have water tanks set up, and they had some alfalfa spread out. And this one bull, the guide who was with me was pointing him out, said, that's the bull you want. I said, okay. So we were watching him, and he would chase the other ones away, and then he would eat a little bit of food, and then he would turn, and he would go around behind the group. And he did this for about eight or ten minutes. And then finally he came in and gave me a shot, because they're constantly moving. Um, and then when he gave me a shot, he gave me a shot on his left side. And, this, and I drew back that bow, and I as soon as he... He took a step with his left leg and stepped forward and then turned away. And I let that arrow go and it went right behind his left elbow. And the moment it hit, he took off. The whole herd took off. And he booked out of there, went in about a large half circle, ran about 130 yards. And we lost sight of the herd in the dust. And the guide said, that looked like a good hit. So we waited about 10 minutes and followed the trail, and 
he went about 130 yards, and that stone point went right into his heart, and he was dead within seconds. Oh, wow. Ignescent remnant. Awesome. So you got the big game mm-hmm. with your dad's bow. Yep. That's killer. On the 10-year yeah, ten year anniversary of his passing. Um, so when I came back to camp with that thing in the truck, it was, it was like a celebrity walked in. They could not believe that I had downed that wildebeest with a stone point. The whole crew came out. The guides came out. 
the guide's parents, who also lived there, came over to see this thing. We rolled in with it in the back of the truck, and they were toasting me with champagne. The cooks came out. Uh, everybody who was there came out to see this thing, and they said, you shot that with a stone point? Yeah, I did. They couldn't, could not believe it. So um, after that, we took it to the skinning shed and I had another little surprise for him. So I had a little chunk of obsidian, volcanic glass, and I would picked up in Oregon. And I said, before you guys touch this thing, I want to show you guys what stone tools can do. So I cracked off a couple flakes off the bottom of that thing that were maybe about as big as a quarter. And they have edges on them that will rival a surgeon's scalpel. So I took that thing and I split that hide open on that wildebeest belly and their jaws hit the ground. And then I had a, a, a small hafted obsidian knife and just in a little wooden handle. It's a very simple knife, nothing, yeah. nothing special. And I start ripping the hide off of that thing and they just could not believe what those stone points could do and what those stone tools could do. So uh, they... I showed them a little bit, and then we left, went back to camp, and let the Skinners do their job. But that was probably one of the pinnacles of my hunting career was to be able to do that, go to Africa and, and get a big game with my dad's bow and arrow and complete that. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you made it back safe yep, to tell yep, the story. Yep, yep. <laughs> So then um, I guess I'll go on to the next one. So two days later, uh, we were in an elevated blind. It was in the morning. Um, it was a cool morning, kind of overcast. Wind was blowing in our face. And it was another water tank that they had. And, and I'll, I'll go real quick to tell you that these animals that are on private land are considered landowner's property. They used to not be. It used to be considered property of the government. Mm -hmm. The government changed, the South African government changed the laws years ago, and they said, okay, instead of us considering them government property, if you're a landowner and these animals are on your property, then near your property to manage. And you can have hunts out here, you can sell the, the, the animals if you want. So now the landowners had incentive to take care of the game. So what do they do? They, they, they see a, a financial opportunity. They start sinking wells down into the ground, and you go out there into these dry areas, and there's these, these water wells that are set up that are set up only for the game animals. Mm -hmm. So these animals have water, and they are thriving out there. When they first changed the law, I think they estimated there was around 500,000 game wild animals out there on private ranches today it's over 21 million wow. so people can get mad at the hunting industry and say well you're going over there and you're shooting these animals well the thing is that everything is a commodity mm -hmm. that's the world we live in and if you can make money off of these things now the landowners have money they can make money off these animals they can provide food for them they can mm -hmm. provide water for them and the, the animals thrive out there. Yeah. So um, it's, it, yes, some, some will be taken by hunters, but it's, it's, it's a commodity that, these, that, that preserves the animals because if the water was not out there and people didn't provide that stuff, those mm -hmm. animals would not be there. Right. Or their numbers would be so low. 
But when you go out there, it's like it looks like a barnyard. The ground is stomped to pieces, and there's all kinds of droppings everywhere. It smells like a barnyard. Wow. It really does. You can sit down in a blind and be there for four minutes, five minutes, and here comes warthogs, and then here comes zebra, and then here comes gemsbach, and then 20 minutes later, you've got wildebeest come in, and then here comes an eland, or a group of eland. It's, wow. You never know what's going to show up. Impala, red leshway, baboons, um, kudu, black wildebeest, blue wildebeest, golden wildebeest, black impala, regular impala. It's just, wow. you never know what you're going to see. So, um, back to the hunt. So, <laughs> so, two days after I got the wildebeest, I'm up in this elevated blind in the morning. Wind's blowing in. Um, there's a water tank there. They scattered some alfalfa out uh, in front of us. And then three kudu came in. And there were also some warthogs there as well. So, as the warthogs were in there eating, these three kudu come in, and there's one of them. And they look, they look like gentle animals, but they are not. You know, this is Africa, and they, they have to survive out there. It's tough. It's a tough environment. So they're very territorial over the food. Well, this one, one kudu was the dominant bull, and he would look at these warthogs that were in there eating the alfalfa, and he would slam his horns down on their heads so hard that I swear it sounded like this crack in their skull. Mm. Oh, he was driving everybody away. So the guide said, that's a good one to take. I had my primitive bow on this hunt. Um, he was, again, moving. He would eat a little bit of food. He'd drive the other ones away, and then he would come back. And then finally he gave me a shot on his, his right-hand side. And I drew that bow back, and I let that primitive arrow go. And it flew like a dream. Um, there was no wobbling. I mean, it flew as beautifully as any arrow I've ever seen. It hit that kudu, and it was a very soft whoop. I could hear it. He was that close. But that arrow did not hit a bone. It sunk almost all the way to the feathers. He whirled around, took off running, and ran about 140 yards. And the rest of his life could be measured in seconds after I let that arrow go. And he never heard the shot. He never heard the bow go off. He never heard the arrow. He never knew that, that anything was wrong until that arrow hit him. And the guide mentioned something to me about it later. He said, I cannot believe how quiet that bow is. I said, that's another advantage of these wooden bows is that if you have them tuned right, they are incredibly quiet. Mm -hmm. So that was the next one, that, the next animal I got. Um, after we got him, brought him back to camp, and then went out on some more hunts. Uh, a couple of days later, we went onto another property, and I ended up shooting a Niala, which is uh, kind of like a deer-sized animal. Um, pretty animal, though. Got, got like a long, shaggy coat. Kind of hard to describe, but um, pretty animal. And ended up getting him with a stone point made out of a fine-grained basalt. The stone came from northern Arizona that a guy gave me. And uh, it was a chest shot, and he went about 50 yards, 40, 50 yards, and lied down under an acacia tree, and that was it. Just took a long nap, Yeah, huh? <laughs> that was it, yep. So um, 
I wanted to do that. I wanted to test those stone points. But the other thing I wanted to test when I was out there was how strong these mounting materials are. I wanted to test how effective the primitive bow was against tough African game and also how strong the, the materials are for mounting it. So I mounted these points using glue made out of pine sap and wrapped them on. Once they were set in there, it's like a natural hot melt glue. Heat the pine sap up. You set the, the point in there. Once it cools, it hardens. Then you wrap over that with a piece of chewed deer tendons. And once that stuff shrinks and it dries, that tendon holds really f firmly, securely. Hmm. And I've shot North, you know, I've used this stuff on North American game, and it works really well. But African game is a totally different animal. So I uh, wanted to test the strength of those hafting materials, and I, it, they passed with flying colors. They hold those points in there as securely as they are set in concrete. Uh, the points would be damaged. Some of them would be if he hit bones, but the, that, the hafting itself never broke loose once. Dude, that's killer. That is so awesome. Like I said, you know, I've showed you some of the pictures. My grandpa, he had the, the arrowheads yeah. that he had found. And I just think, I just, I've always found them fascinating. Just that, just the making and mm -hmm. usage of them. I mean, it's just, it's just so cool. Yeah. It's, and it takes, it doesn't take long to learn how to do it. Um, if you have a, a skill, somebody who's skilled and can teach you how to do it, mm -hmm. but it takes a lot of practice to really learn to control the stone, to get it to do what you want it to do. Mm -hmm. If you want to, if you've got a thick area on a, on a piece of stone, you want to remove it. You've got a, you've got a procedure where you've got to set your edges up correctly and you've got to strike it the right way in the right angle and the right amount of force mm -hmm. so that that flake will carry and take that thick area off. And it's, it's a lot of practice to really get to where you can really control what you're doing with that stuff. But once you do, you can make points out of all kinds of different materials, and they are surprisingly sharp and effective. Um, ask the African game I got. Oh, wait, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> before, uh, before I move on, um, when you first started doing this, how many did you break just trying to get that right point? Hmm. I'd break quite a bit in the beginning. Um, I would work them down, and then I would get them close to being done, and then usually that's what would happen. They'd, they'd break at the end. Get right to the yeah, end. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but as I started to learn the finer points of making these things, um, as long as I don't try to cut corners and break the rules and I do what I know I need to do, I almost never break them. That's cool. So it's it's just I, you learn the skill, and then you learn what you need to do to get the stone to respond and work the way you want it to. And as long as you don't try to cut corners too much, mm -hmm. uh, my breakage rate is almost zero. It's when I start rushing. It's when I start, ah, I, I don't have to set this up. I can just mm -hmm. hit this piece of stone, and it'll work. And then and, and something in the back of my head saying, nah, don't do that. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I, I see what I can get away with. And then I, it teaches you very quickly that you need to slow down. So, What's up, Mosh Pit Podcast? This is Emily Coffey, and you're listening to Convergent Evolution from my new EP, A New Form of Self-Hatred, which drops November 11th. <laughs>
Savannah. Um, so you've been making new jewelry, new stuff like that. What you got going on? So I've been making a lot of different stuff. Um, I don't know. It's like just more edgy, a little more showpiece items, like not as simple as it was before. Mm-hmm. And I've really upgraded my products. So it's like I'm spending a little more money. on like I don't just get turquoise like I'll get the higher grade turquoise that has a lot more pigment it's brighter it's flashier given I've had to up you know the product price for that so it's more I'm doing more like luxury items okay and I've also started um kind of doing more replica stuff of older native jewelry So it's like I have a few pieces that I've done that are Zuni replicas because the Zuni jewelry is probably some of the best. Like if you look at anything you like in a store, like any kind of native store you go in and you're Mm -hmm. like, ooh, I like that. It's probably Zuni made. It's just everything. They just use the best quality stuff and the way everything is arranged. It's just beautiful. That's cool. So how much of the stuff are you are you finding yourself as far as like the stones or do you just buy? Oh, I'm mostly getting them from rock shows. Just rock shows. Yeah. Okay. Especially like stuff like there's a lot of freshwater pearls and mm. stuff like that. So it's. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if you were actually sifting the rivers, finding these or. No. No, no, no time for all that. Huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's one of the things that I've, I've kind of shown an interest here recently in is, going to the rivers and finding the geodes and the um georgia actually a lot of people don't realize that georgia actually is one of the best places to find amethyst and um agate um layered agate is in north georgia and also um citrine so it's uh i think there's a place in new harley where you can go and walk the rivers and pan and find it yourself Looks like a field trip. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I like to find things in nature and then make things out of them. It just it it's because I mean there's n- no better material. And every single piece is unique. Yes, and that's that's one of my selling points on art is I want something that no one else has, and I want to make something that no one else has made. Right. I mean, except for God, but you know. <laughs> no, back to me. Yeah, back to you. <laughs> so, let's talk about y'all's festivals that you have that you have done. We won't talk about ones coming up. What um, what's it like just setting up your stuff, letting people come through, look at it? You know, walk us through that. Works. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of setup work, and it's honestly, it's so like it's great. But it is exhausting because you're, you're almost like an entertainer. Like, you have to, like, sing and dance your way through all of it. And then everyone has so many questions to ask you. And, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? Look at this. Look at that. Well, can you do it like this? And then if I walk away for, like, ten minutes, can you, like, 
change this chain into that one, or maybe I like this stone. Can I have something wrapped in copper in this stone? And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, yes, I can do it custom, but it's like. You can't pick it up today. Uh, they usually do. Do they? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, that's not bad. I didn't know how much actually intricate goes into it of Depends swapping. On what they want. I know swapping the chain, like, yeah, you know, I need a little bad. bit shorter. Or, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then it's like, they just have so many questions about, like, well, what is this stone? What's that stone? Hmm. Like, where did this animal come from? What bones are these from? Like, and it's like, almost like each new person that comes over, and then you start all over again, and you have to do it all over again. Yeah. It's almost like you got to do a class at the very beginning. Yes. Y'all pay attention. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But it is very fun, just because someone is interested in your hard work and your mm -hmm. unique pieces. So it is fun, but it, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of prep, and there's a lot of a lot of work you have to do beforehand to make this stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember I'd been doing festivals for years, off and on, arts and craft shows, that kind of thing, and. And so when I met Savannah, she was making jewelry, and I said, we, ought, we should do an arts and craft show together. And I think she was a little hesitant because she said, well, I don't know if anybody's going to like my stuff. I said, I said no, people are going to like your stuff. And you're making handmade jewelry. They're going to love it. And she was a little surprised, I think, the first show we did, I believe it was, was it the Apple Festival <laughs> we did? And... Um, and she was selling quite a bit and she would make something there at the table and it was gone as soon as she made it it somebody else oh i like that and they'd buy it and then she'd make another one and then they'd buy it and she was selling like three or four or five of the same item and i think i think that really she was she was excited about it it was like well people really like my stuff mm -hmm. and then she wanted to do more i said yeah we'll look, we'll do some more so we did and then i think we did the was it the Mushroom Festival? Mm -hmm. um, and we'd done, I think, a few other ones, um, some better than others. But mm -hmm. the Mushroom Festival, she, uh, she was, there were people coming by, and it was crazy how much she was selling. And people loved her stuff. She outsold me by quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, my stuff was a little more niche, mm -hmm. you know, the Native American replicas and things. And so, and, and she has more time to make this stuff, and so... But it was, yeah, it's, it's fun to do. But, yeah, you're, you're talking to a lot of people, and mm. it's just kind of the same thing over and over. And I've, I've, you can lose, I've almost lost my voice because you're talk, trying to talk yeah. to so many people. But yeah, dude, you can't just sit and let it, you know, expect people just to come by and look and yeah. buy. You've yeah. got to, hey, you like that? Yeah, you've got to engage them, and yeah. and I will, I will ask them questions. Oh, do you like? What do you like? Do you like this? Do you like? Like I'd ask people if they would come by and look at my arrowheads. Oh, you ever found any arrowheads before? Oh, cool. Well, tell me your story. And mm. then I'd tell, well, I found one when I was a kid, and I got into this stuff, and I started making them. And so these are some of the ones I've made. And then you start a conversation with them, and that's really the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And and then that's every you engage people, and they come in, and then they're more willing to buy your stuff. Sons of the Flood, Bleeding Greed.
funny you say that because Savannah used to joke around and be like, oh, I got to show Amanda my inventory before I put it on the internet because she's going to buy something just as soon as I list it. Every yeah. time. Every time. I'm like, I want that one. And she's like, I just listed that one. She's like, do you know how long it took me to make that listing and do all the pictures? <laughs> or, or she'd list it and I'd see it on Facebook and then I'd screenshot it and send it to her and like bring that one to work. She's like, damn it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, and the thing too is, you never know what people are going to like. You know, right. you can make things and and that you don't find that appealing, mm-hmm. but somebody else may love it. And that's the other thing is when you're making this stuff is you got to almost got to make a variety. Mm-hmm. Even things you you think ah, nobody would like that, you you can't be the judge of that because there there is there's an ass for every seat is what they say. You just got to find that ass. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so. If people will, they, they've got their own tastes, their own preferences, their own color, you know, palette mm-hmm. that they like. And, and I've had, I, I did a show one time with a friend of mine who had a bunch of blown glass stuff that he had made. And, um, and he had this one gaudy, bright orange, hand-blown glass pen. And he said, man, that thing is so ugly. Nobody's going to buy it. And it was one of the first things that sold. <laughs> but you never know. You yeah. never know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I used to talk to people like, you know, they'd be custom stuff, and I'd be like, would you ever make something like this? And I'd describe it, and they go, no, nobody would buy that. I was like, just make one, try it. Yeah. Yep. Couldn't keep them on the shelf. Yeah. It's yeah. not up to you to decide. Exactly. Customer's going to decide. That's it, yeah. <laughs> You've got to make it for the market, and the market mm-hmm. is not you. The market is mm-hmm. everybody else out there. Mm-hmm. Don't matter what you like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I've been asked for some ugly stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, you yeah. want what color with what? Where? <laughs> That's not going to work, but here it is. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you want. If you're paying, here it is. <laughs> Prepay for that one. <laughs> but there are those color combinations that surprise you. Like That is true. Like um, turquoise and red, deep red. Yeah. That yeah. color combination always looks in my bag right now. fabulous yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. But you would never put those colors together no, naturally. Like you wouldn't think, oh, You're I'm like, going to do turquoise and red. Yeah. But they look so good together. Mm-hmm. Or orange, um, like a bright orange and a turquoise color. Yes. Always looks good. Yeah. And yellow. Throw yellow in there, you're golden. Yeah. You're going to sell that no matter what. Yeah. So, it's and it's it's colors you never would have thought. Like, I'm, I'm like sitting there thinking, okay, pink and purple, blue and purple. <laughs> it, nope. No. It's got to be the bright colors. Yeah. And different shades too, you oh, know, yeah. like a different shade of green with a with a purple, or might not look right. But if you get more of a pastel purple, mm-hmm. you just play with the colors. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. can come up with a unlimited a range of different color combinations. That, oh, yeah. My favorite thing is to when I'm painting a painting is I'll just pick two random colors that I never would pick, mm-hmm. and I just like okay, these are the colors I'm using today. Let's see if it goes. Yeah. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then I paint over it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Been there. Been there. <laughs> Try again. So, Miss Savannah, um, so you got a couple of good books. Yeah. What is your future plan for those? Because I know we want to tease for when you're coming yes. back. <laughs> so, my plan for those deer specifically, I'm actually doing like a full mount on those but so I actually got two big bucks and both of them are in full velvet 
and one of them is almost black, and the other is like a super blonde color. Yeah. So my taxidermist, he's going to wrap them all together. He's got this beautiful cedar tree that he's going to put them on, and Stuff. some persimmons might be in the mix. I don't know. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> but, that's going to be awesome. Definitely want pictures. Yes, for sure. But the other deer that I've gotten, they're definitely going towards that buckskin jacket. Very and cool. it is well on its way. We just finished smoking two of them, and we have half of them. The other two halfway smoked. We just have to smoke the other side. Oh, yeah. Very cool. So it is. Hopefully we will have it done by Thanksgiving. That's the goal. Okay. We'll cool. see. We'll definitely want to see pictures. Oh, yes. And, uh, Billy, anything you got coming up you want to promote? Uh, planning on going, um, let's see. We'll be, I'm looking to go to Tucson mm-hmm. um, in February. I think Savannah is going to accompany me on that. We're going to go on a rock shopping extravaganza. Mm-hmm. Um, Tucson in February has the biggest rock and gem show in the world. And it's about a three-week period where they have people in there from all over the world who come in and they're selling all kinds of stuff. And you have anybody who's in the rock and gem show, jewelry, is there. Um, and it's well known. So the last time I was there was three years ago, I think, when right before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And um, then they shut it down, and then my job changed, and I wasn't going out there anymore for work. But I said, I've always wanted to go back. And I know because Savannah loves rocks as much as I do, if not more, I said, we need to go at least once. So we're planning to do that in February, and we've got some other adventures going coming up in the future. I'm not sure yet. We've got to get some plans locked down, but as soon as we find out about those and we're on the next podcast, we will let you all know. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for coming in, hanging out, and um, that sound means the end of the show. All right. <laughs> well, thank you all again, and we'll be sure to share everything that you guys have, share, whatever. You know, whatever you got. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Anytime, man. Thank y'all. Thanks. Welcome. Broken factory windows, table full of empties. Glory.